CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Lotus Time and the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, January 13th, 2022. I think it's the 13th. I've lost track of time. Uh, here's the headline uh, in the uh, latest edition of the Chicago Tribune. It just popped into my uh, little uh, phone. Uh Biden all but concedes defeat on voting election bills. <laughs> Why am I a Democrat, ladies and gentlemen? Anyway, um, that's not really what I brought my distinguished guests on to discuss, but I got a feeling we'll work our way uh, to that conversation uh, eventually after we get some uh, interesting uh, tidbits of conversation out of the way. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest, to introduce himself. Hey, it's uh, David Sirota. I am the uh, publisher, founder of the Daily Poster, uh, and uh, I am a journalist, and I am the co-producer and co-story creator of the film uh, "Don't Look Up," which is uh, on its has has become the most successful uh, film in Netflix's history in terms of. Uh, viewing hours in its first uh, week or two of release. And he's also uh, a good friend of the Ben Jarofsky show uh, and had one point in his life actually uh, co-wrote a story with me uh, for the reader many years ago. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I got to tell you something about co-writing a story with David Sirota. He doesn't play around. He kept pushing me. <laughs> Come on, man. Not hard enough. <laughs> it's not Damn. I can understand what his uh, his uh, co-workers with uh, Don't Look Up must have gone through. Uh, if you treated them, David, anyway, you treated me harder. Hit them harder. Uh, uh, and uh, longtime listeners of the show also know, we talk about you all the time, David. Uh, you're a longtime lefty, and uh, you were a key uh, aide to Bernie in his last uh, presidential run. Uh, and I would love to take the deep dive on some of the political headlines of the day. Most of our people who listen to the show know you as a longtime uh, strategist and writer and journalist, et cetera, and so forth of the leftist persuasion. 
What they don't know, we'll, we'll get out of the way first because I find it fascinating, is that you have a deep and abiding love for movies. And uh, you, anybody who sees uh, the Daily Poster, a column written by David Sirota, will see a reference. Well, you're kind of, a, you're younger than me, so mostly 80s movies, 90s movies. Right. Uh, that's your wheelhouse. And um, so it's pretty clear that, like, when you want to make a, uh, uh, a metaphor, you know, almost like you go, you'll instinctively go, like in the movie, and then you'll have a scene from a movie. It's a, it's a common a refrain uh, in uh, your journalism. So I know you love movies, but, David, it caught me off guard about your involvement in Don't Look Up. So why don't you start at the beginning and tell folks uh, how it came about that you were involved with such an important movie. Uh, and, a, and a movie well worth watching. Go ahead. Well, so Adam McKay, the director of the movie, director of great movies like Anchorman, uh, Big uh, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, The Big Short, uh, Vice, he and I have been uh, friends for a long time. Uh, and he obviously has, um, if for folks to know, he has Chicago connections. Uh, he came out of Second City and the like, and he'd be uh, before, you know, early in his career, and he was a uh, head writer of SNL. Um, Adam and I have been friends for a long time. And after he did vice, I said to him, Hey, listen, you got to use your superpowers for comedy to do something about the climate crisis. And he said, yeah, I know I've been trying to crack it and I haven't been able to figure it out. And, you know, I just can't, uh, I just don't know. I, you know, I don't want to do a, a Mad Max kind of, um, you know, dystopian movie. And we were going back and forth. And at one point I said, you know, we were the climate crisis feels like a, an asteroid's headed towards earth and no one cares. And he said, you know, Mo, I wonder if that's, maybe that's the movie, you know? And so we got to spitballing some scenes and, uh, ideas and characters and, uh, you know, and ultimately essentially one thing led to another and out came the script, uh, from Adam McKay. And it's a great script. And I gave him notes and the rest is history. Um, and, and, you know, the movie is about climate change, but it's also more deeply, I think, about whether we as a society can process basic facts anymore or whether facts are now just cannon fodder in service of a partisan war, a media war, a culture war. In other words, can, can, do we even have the capacity to accept stipulated, verifiable scientific facts and act constructively on those facts? Or are facts now just a way we insult each other? Are facts things that we distract ourselves from? Are we even able to act rationally in the face of uncomfortable facts? And I think that's, at the, at the, that's the essence of this movie. Absolutely. I urge everybody to watch it. It's a great flick. And I say this, David, uh, not just because I want to promote your career or anything, uh, but it is a great flick. My wife and I watched it. I'm an old-time movie guy. I go way back, obsessively watching movies. Uh, I think I'm watching Inside Man now for the 12th time in my life. Uh, certain movies I love more than others. Um, well, you asked a question. Now answer that question. I don't want to give away too much of the movie, though I have a feeling that everybody who's listening has seen it. Uh, as you said, it's one of the most popular movies in the history of Netflix. Uh, but you asked a question, I'll answer it. Can we uh, have a rational conversation in our country uh, around certain accepted facts? I, I think the answer is is in question. I, I think at times it feels like we can't. 
Uh, at times, it feels like the discussion is we're trying to he said, she said everything. Everybody can be in their own information silo. Uh, everybody can bring so-called alternative facts. Um, I, I think that um, ideology means we don't want to accept certain facts. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, some people see this movie, they think it's a pandemic movie about the science of of vaccines, uh, the science of uh, virus pandemics. And, and I think a lot of times it feels like we we just refuse to just stipulate, yes, this is a fact. Um, I think in the climate debate, more and more people have stipulated that the climate is changing. So that's good. That's becoming more accepted, not a hundred percent, but more. But now the debate is, okay, well, if the climate's changing and it's dangerous, here are the things that we can do to uh, fix it. And we can't really even yet agree that we can or should do those things. Uh, and so I worry about that you have a climate crisis that really isn't political at all. It's not, it's just math. It's just physics. It's just biology. Uh, and yet it is seen as a, you know, a political issue, quote unquote, and it shouldn't be a political, it's, it's climate change is political in the same way water is political or the same way air is political. It's just, climate change is not political. It's just a thing. It's, it's a, it's a phenomenon. Uh, and the fact that it has become quote unquote political just suggests that th basic facts, basic science is now just another uh, piece of artillery or ammunition in the political war. And that's really problematic because climate change doesn't care about, uh, people's political ideology. It doesn't care about the current state of politics right now. It doesn't care about, it doesn't have the capacity to care. It's just a thing. And so what I worry about is, is that we're having, we're still debating things that are undebatable while the crisis gets worse and worse. And so the hope is that the movie, people watch the movie and they feel grabbed by the lapels to, 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 and and they hear a truth or a set of truths about our society that I think most people know to be true in their hearts, but we rarely ever say out loud, which is that our information system, our way of uh, uh, dealing with facts is completely foobar and needs to change. I just uh, dealt with this uh, on a very local level here in the city of Chicago, uh, where I opined in a column that the uh, mayor of the city of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, does not in fact believe uh, the ridiculous things she's been saying uh, in her confrontation with the Chicago Teachers Union over uh, COVID protocol in the schools, but that in fact uh, she just is saying them uh, to defend herself against things that can't be defended or to win points in a larger political battle with the teachers union. And that leads me to this question. Do you think that's become the position of so many people in this country that they say things like in terms of denying climate change or denying that the vaccines are necessary to protect us from COVID? Are they saying them just to win uh, points in a larger political battle? Uh, or do you think they actually believe things that are not true? I think sometimes it's a mix of those things. I think sometimes politicians, especially, 
don't like to think of themselves as villains. They don't like to think of themselves as corrupt. So if you hand them a politically convenient set of rationales, no matter how divorced from the actual truth they are, a political a politically convenient set of rationales to justify behavior that's easy for them, they will glom onto that, whether it's truthful or not. In other words, if a politician doesn't, if it's easier for a politician in the power analysis to take a, take a certain position, they don't want to think of themselves as Dr. Evil for taking that position. So if there's a, if there's a rationale out there that they can glom onto to say, Hey, I'm not being Dr. Evil here. I'm, I'm just being, you know, here's this ridiculous argument. That's really why I'm, I'm doing this. It makes them feel better. It, 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 it makes them feel like, um, they're serving the public. Uh, even when they're not. Uh, and so, you know, I think the problem is, is that a lot of politicians don't want to take risks and, and a lot of politicians really don't want to take risks when it comes to challenging power. I mean, most politicians who are corrupt, again, they don't see themselves as corrupt. They say, oh, you know, I, I didn't vote for the provision to lower drug prices in America, even though drug prices are uh, uh, rapaciously high in the United States. I, I, I voted against that because I want to make sure that there's still good research and development for drugs. And the drug companies supposedly have to make this amount of money that they make off of the American public, uh, in order to fund that research and development. Meanwhile, that politician may be getting tens of thousands of dollars from, uh, drug company CEOs in terms of campaign contributions. But they want to believe that, that, that they're actually behaving in the public interest when they're voting against the public interest, that that's a, a way to comfort themselves that I'm not just selling out here. I'm doing, I'm a good guy. Uh, keeping drug prices in America is, I'm the good guy here. I'm the hero, right? I mean, they, I think that's actually how it psychologically works for most of the most corrupt people. Uh, in the government and, and in the country, that that they do not see themselves as villains, that they have come up with prepackaged rationales provided to them by the industries uh, that they are uh, uh, shilling for, that that they take those rationales and they internalize them, uh, because nobody wants to wake up in the morning and look look in the mirror and see Doctor Evil, they want to see Superman. So people effectively brainwash themselves. Our leaders have effectively brainwashed themselves. It doesn't matter if in their heart of hearts they actually believe uh, what they're saying. Uh, the reality is they're never going to. It's just more comfortable. Yeah, they're they're more likely if somebody gives if a corporate interest gives them a way to brainwash themselves that makes their decision to take the easy road, the lucrative road, the self-enriching road, the less risky political road for themselves, they are more likely to take on that thought process because it's, it's self-soothing. It, it doesn't make them come face to face with the fact that they're a horrible person. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, again, uh, going back to Chicago, just, uh, Lori Lightfoot insisting that the only thing driving her was her, uh, the reality that children need to be in school and you have to keep them in school as opposed to a debate over whether the schools themselves were safe. Uh, but uh, it, it, it gets to the point you're making, uh, in, in the, you know, movie, and I think on that issue, if I can just sort of, go ahead. you know, I don't know the details of what's going on in Chicago, but I think that's also a situation where, and this is what I'm frustrated about just in the pandemic, which is that 
you know, science does not offer us 100% answers. And I think uh, an infantilized America and infantilized politicians want binary answers. Yes, it's safe. No, it's not safe. And science, that's just not the way the world works. It's just, it's not the way science works. It's not way the, the way the world works. And I think that on the schools issue, as an example, there are no easy answers. You're going to make a sacrifice either way. You're either going to keep the kids in school or you're going to close the schools. And each of those comes with good parts and bad parts. And there, there just is no simple answer to that question. And I think, you know, I obviously, I believe in standing with the teachers. I think teachers are heroes. I think that, uh, you know, I think when their union votes to do something uh, on behalf of um, safety, uh, that is something that should be respected. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, you can't question it. You can't, you know, ask respectful or resp even respectfully disagree with it, but you should respect uh, that process. And I think that the fact that situations like that become so polarized, so us versus them, is actually a really sad commentary on exactly what, in a sense, the movie is about, that we can't have a, a civil, rational debate and discussion about a set of difficult circumstances. There is no right answer when it comes to something like this. There, there just isn't. Or, or I should put it this way. I have, I have my views on what I think can happen and you have your views on what you think can happen and everybody can have their own views on that. But like, there's no, my answer is 1000% correct. And your answer is completely wrong. Th that's just not how the world and, and not how science or how a pandemic works. And I think we don't want to accept that. I, I was correct. You one thing about the, your own movie in your own movie, there is one situation well, that's that is a hundred percent there is this comet coming to uh sure. the earth and it will destroy earth unless we do something to impede its progress there's no sure. and, and, to, <laughs> and i'll so go let me, one let, for, me, let me you go let me go add ahead. something to that yeah i, I my, the way that relates to the point i just made is is that the movie is an allegory which essentially the the allegory is effectively saying, even when there yeah. is a situation <laughs> where there is no debate, yeah. right? Like, cause most situations, <laughs> arguably there's like, you know, there can be a debate, you know, it, they're not, it doesn't break down, you know, yet, yes or no. But even in situations where there is a, a clearly something is happening and we need to do something about it, even in those situations, we can't behave in a rational civil way. Uh, all right. I, uh, want you to address criticism. I've seen uh, level at the movie. I could address it myself, but I'd much rather hear you do it. Uh, and I've read this, uh, from people of the centrist persuasion, uh, many times centrist persuasion. People have great access, uh, to the mainstream media and they, they criticize the movie because, uh, as they put it, it's preaching to the choir. Uh, and that the only people who will be moved by this movie are people who uh, already believe in what Sirota believes or what Adam McKay believes or what uh, DiCaprio believes or Jennifer Lawrence, et cetera, and so forth, the people who made the movie. <laughs> uh, so I'd love to get your response uh, to that uh, 
uh, criticism. And then the obvious follow-up is, uh, how do you ch- get people to change their worldview if they disagree with you? But let's deal with the criticism itself. You're just preaching to the choir, uh, Sirota. You should have been preaching to people more like me. Uh, well, so first, of, first of all, I would call that, um, in a word, horseshit, <laughs> in the sense that it, it's not, it, it's, it's at best prognostication. It is a, it is a belief by the people arguing that, but it's not based on any empirical reality at all. Uh, I can tell you anecdotally, granted it's only anecdotal, but anecdotally, we've heard from a lot of people who say their family members are conservative or, or Republican, and they really appreciated the movie as well. Uh, it's gotten viewed by uh, tens of millions, I think more than a, more than a hundred million people. So the idea that it's only a hundred million, you know, left of center people, that's just ridiculous. But I also think about that, that argument, um, there's an inherent smug elitism in that argument, which is to say that the people saying that, that, oh, you're only preaching to your choir and I'm sure without any evidence at all, I'm sure without any evidence at all that people who don't necessarily agree with you on everything won't understand, uh, internalize or be moved by this message. That's fundamentally elitist. How do you know that? And, and w- what does it say about your view of people you disagree with? Right? It, what it says is you think they're too stupid, too uh, ignorant, too hostile to basic truths in this movie to get anything out of it. And I, I just reject that. I mean, this movie is a fundamentally, in my view, populist movie. That is to say that there are universal truths in this movie some people are going to hate the movie. Some people are going to love the movie. Uh, I don't think you have to agree with my particular politics to take things away from this movie, uh, to see the truisms in this movie. I'm just not that much of an elitist to believe that you have to agree with my politics to see the universal truths in this movie. And I think the people who are making that argument are really showing their whole ass they're showing their own elitism about how they view people they disagree with. Uh, in, in general, do you think you can change people's minds in the culture? Because so much of what you started off by saying is that we're in this, uh, we're locked in uh, this horrific situation uh, where people believe can't even agree on certain facts. Uh, have you lost confidence in your ability as a journalist, a writer? Uh, to get people who start off disagreeing with you uh, to use your powers of persuasion and uh, logic to get them to agree with you. Yes, I have lost faith in that. Um, I've lost faith. I've I've lost faith in in the idea that if you report facts, that those facts can w- will be judged on their merits. Uh, I, I have had multiple experiences as a reporter, this is separate from the movie, multiple experiences as a reporter where you report facts and depending on who the facts that you've reported serve, those facts get touted by one political side and vilified by another political side. And it's switched sides all the time. We did a bunch of, we did this big story on, uh, in 2016 on Hillary Clinton and, and her decisions on arms deals and how, uh, the country's benefiting from arms deals that, that the state department was approving. We're also giving money to the Clinton foundation. This, this story was touted by conservative right-wingers, uh, and it was vilified by, uh, uh, Democrats 
Democratic, uh, uh, you know, people on social media, Democratic pundits. Then we reported on uh, a story on Donald Trump and him essentially abusing the fine print to rip off his own investors. This story was touted by Democrats and liberals, and it was vilified by right wingers. And the point being that what was depressing about that to me as a journalist is, hey, listen, I just reported facts that nobody is disputing. These are facts, literally not anybody, they're not my opinion, they're grounded in documents, and you're mad based on your political affiliation. You're mad at the story or you love the story. You're not mad at the politician or mad about the facts on their merits. And so that is a really, truly depressing thing about being a journalist today. Uh, that is not why I went into journalism and it hasn't deterred me from continuing to do journalism, but it is super depressing to know that no matter how good a story you report out, it will be uh, filtered through a kind of media ecosystem that is represented in the movie uh, and received based on uh, different camps and how they view it to serve their own political interests, rather than what the facts are actually saying about what's going on in our world. And, and that is depressing. Now, I do think as a, as a, as a asterisk here, I do think comedy can be a place that delivers persuasive messages. I do think that, uh, our movie does deliver really universal truths, uh, that I think, uh, that the comedy in a sense, it allows people to laugh at the thing that we, the things that we know are true and bad that we don't usually explicitly talk about. And so the hope is, is that the comedy part of this movie is part of what persuades people to realize what the problem is and be more aware of that and ultimately move them into, uh, uh, action, move them into at least acceptance of uh, the idea that there are facts in the world and they should be respected. Well, one of the things uh, most funny about the movie uh, is its depiction of the media. <laughs> and uh, the media always, the media looks bad, uh, David, in pretty much every movie, even in a movie is not uh, explicitly about the media. I, I make fun of this all the time, but Whenever there's a scene in a movie where uh, one of the leading character has to go through that mob of reporters, and the reporters just, you know, just yelling at him. They look, any movie, TV show, they look the worst. It's <laughs> yelling questions out as they go. They don't, it's become such a stock image. So the media does not look good at pretty much in any movie. But in your movie, Adam McKay, this guy is just continuing his great tradition of making fun of media. And I, I, he's really on, like, it goes back to Anchorman, really. The, the hosts, Tyler Perry, uh, the host of that morning talk show, man, did you guys capture that to a T? Like that bubble-headed giggling thing they do, you know, to re reduce every issue to something that you can joke about and laugh about because you don't want to take anything seriously. You don't want to offend anybody. Diet, man, I was, I thought that was right on, uh, and I it's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, the, yeah, the Daily Rip. Yeah, that's what we call it, the Daily Rip. It's one. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. And I, I think, um, 
it, again, it's it, it rings universally true. That is, you watch that and it's familiar and funny because you see it every day if you flip on morning television. Um, and I think when it comes to something like the climate crisis, it's just that model, that method, that format, it's just not up to the task of helping us realize and act on a crisis that is threatening our world. By the way, have you heard from any like morning uh, show hosts about their, the depiction uh, in the movie? Has anybody got back to you and said, Sorota, that was really a cheap shot or, you know, you really got us. No, good, or no, no. I mean, I, I, I know that Tyler Perry, um, I believe I read that he talked to a, a couple of these folks to, to get himself to help get himself into character. So I think that's why it's so real is, is, I mean, Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett, I, what an amazing job they did at capturing that. I, it really didn't feel forced at all. It felt, and that's actually the, the thing I'm so proud of about the movie is that, you know, the, the movie I think has generated so much conversation because it's only like one click away from reality. It's not five, 10 clicks away from reality. Right? It's not so ridiculous that you can't imagine it. In fact, what I think is is has freaked some people out is that it's it really is very close to reality. I mean, there's this idea in science fiction called the uncanny valley. The uncanny valley is this idea uh, about how when a human being sees a, a robot that's too human-like, a little too human-like, it freaks out a human being, there's something innate that we get freaked out about something that's not, ex not so fake that, you know, it's fake, but something that's not, it's, it's one little bit away from real. It just freaks us out. And I think this movie, I think part of the reason why it's gotten such a strong reaction is because it really is in the uncanny Valley. You, I've heard people say, oh, that was the best documentary I ever saw. And, and I think that's what freaks people out. You watch this movie and you're like, that's exactly how it would go down. If a, if a comet was headed towards earth, that is, ex that is not an overstatement. That is really how it would go. Oh, absolutely. And it's a, and I know you, were, I, I actually do not know. I do not know this. I said, I know you. And then I did not know this. If, uh, the COVID debate, uh, had already played out by the time you and uh, Adam McKay got around to spitballing ideas about the movie, because it's a perfect metaphor, uh, or a parable for the COVID debate. Uh, we're instinctively well, and the, it, he, we started spitballing this before COVID was even on the radar. Uh, and then as Adam has said, COVID hit and they had to tweak the script to make it 15% even more insane because reality's insanity was catching up with the, with the parody and satire of the movie. Well, let's just, let's just think about this. So the, the position that Donald Trump is in, you see, we talk COVID. So Donald Trump wants full credit for creating the vaccine, okay? The guy who told you to inject bleach wants credit for creating the vaccine. At the same time, he does not want to alienate his core supporters by saying you must take the vaccine. Even though he'll say this is saving the world and you should take it, he doesn't want to go the next step and say, you must take it because mandates, and this is what he said in the latest interview, uh, mandates are the biggest problem we face in our country. Now, I, I'm like, 
that in itself is such bizarre satire. How could you or and McKay get together and make it any more bizarre than that huge giant mixed message that Donald Trump uh, is trying to get people to ingest? And it could hurt him, David, politically speaking, to take too much credit for the vaccine. That's how insane things are right now. So, yes, I think you're absolutely correct when you say uh, – <laughs> In some ways, the reality uh, has outpaced your movie. Hundred percent, and I, and I think the entire discourse around the vaccine has absolutely—it's just so insane. And by this, I mean I have a member of my family who uh, works in in and around healthcare facilities, and to hear that person talk about what's going on in inside of healthcare facilities right now uh, about with COVID to hear the reality of what's going on versus the, in contrast to the political conversation, the media conversation about the vaccine and about the, the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. And, and it's horrifying in, in, in this way that, the vaccine is a miracle of science. Any rational physician scientist will tell you it is a miracle that there that our government was able to uh, create so quickly uh, with so much basic research that had been done prior that we were able to create this life-saving vaccine. And while I'm not weighing in on whether people should be forced to take the vaccine, I am weighing in on the idea that th this is a good thing, that if we cannot agree that the creation of a life-saving vaccine is a good thing, to paraphrase the movie, then something has gone deeply wrong in our society. And that the selective outrage about this vaccine versus other things that happen in our healthcare system is just even more insane. In other words, there are people who are upset about the vaccine, insist that it is unproven, it's not, make all these wild claims about the vaccine, and then are also enthusiastic about experimental treatments and taking ivermectin or yes. whatever other therapy like yeah. it's so selective like <laughs> you think this vaccine is actually peer-reviewed and proven to work may not be perfect it may not have no side effects for a small number of people it not science doesn't give us perfection but you're you're very upset about the, this vaccine and yet you're incredibly certain that <laughs> <laughs> ivermectin or bleach or whatever is gonna like that doesn't that that's that's what we're talking about here. It's like, I'm not going to accept things that are peer-reviewed facts. And then I'm just going to... So so it would be one thing to say, I'm not going to accept any fact. I'm not going to accept ivermectin. I'm not going to accept the vaccine. I'm not going to accept any of it. I mean, at least that's consistent. But the contradictory behavior where somehow the peer-reviewed science of the vaccine is not credible, but... Some idiot on YouTube saying ivermectin is the cure. Somehow that that's a, that's a 
That's an indisputable fact. I mean, that is the crazy thing that we're talking about here. And that is what's so disturbing when you talk to, you know, this member of my family who's in, in the in the healthcare field, you know, how it can draw people who are living this on the front lines, they are being driven insane by seeing the real world effects of that insanity in, in the hospital, in the nursing homes, in the, well, I mean, to, to see the insanity of the world that we present in don't look up vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic. Oh, I'm not going to accept the vaccine. Give me bleach. I don't, the vaccine, I don't believe the science. Give me ivermectin. To, then, then to see people dying because of that, literally watching human beings die. Imagine the experience of that. And that that's what really depresses me. I mean, that really, that really, I don't even know what to, I don't even know how to process that. It's just, it's, it's, it's maddening. Yeah, I hear you. And, and it is bewildering. Uh, and by the way, very uh, interesting choice of words. Uh, you were talking, our government, you said, uh, came up with this uh, miracle vaccine. You didn't give credit to Pfizer. You didn't give credit to Johnson & Johnson. You didn't give credit to any of the big pharma companies that have actually, quote unquote, producing it or making gazillions off of it. You gave credit to our government. Talk about uh, that distinction using our government as opposed to the pharmaceutical companies that are ma uh, that manufacture it and are distributing it. Look, I, I'm not taking uh, I'm not taking away credit that private companies participated in this, but but I'm also saying that the basic science, basic research around these vaccines and 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 more broadly around medicines in this country, that comes from our government. I mean, there's a there was a study a couple of years ago that found uh, I think it was every major FDA approved drug from I think it was 2010 to 2016, every single one. The basic research of that had been funded by the federal government through the NIH. This is a part of the this is a part of America that we, we just don't even talk about, which is that the drug companies tout the idea that they need to make giant outsized profits, bigger profits here than they make anywhere else, in order to fund their research and development. Meanwhile, the federal government, aka you, me, and the entire public, are actually the ones funding the basic research, which is then handed over to the drug companies for them to profit off of. Profit off of not just worldwide, but profit off of, in the biggest possible way, compared to anyone else, profit off of Americans who originally paid for the research and development. Another way to put it is we, the public, did the riskiest research at the beginning. That's the financially riskiest research because it's early on in the process. You know, you're going to dig a lot of dry holes to use a oil metaphor there. You're going to look in the wrong places a lot. But we, the, the, the public, funded that research. That's risky research. And then when we discover something, we give it away <laughs> to private companies there was a rule on the books that said the companies, when they get that research, there used to be a rule that said you have to offer it to Americans at a fair and reasonable price because we, the Americans, already paid. We, we de-risked it for you. We paid for the research. Okay, you didn't have to pay for that. So in return for our risky investment, you have to offer the final product to us at fair and reasonable prices. In the Clinton administration, that was rescinded. It was a huge win for the drug companies brought to you by the Clinton administration and drug prices since then have skyrocketed because the drug companies get the best of all worlds. They're in a country with no price controls. 
They're in a country whose government funds most of their research. So they get cheap research or subsidized research that they can turn into a product that they can offer to the public and they can be given a monopoly patent so there's no price competition and they don't have to offer it at any fair and reasonable price in the United States. And Medicare can't even use its bulk purchasing power to negotiate lower prices. I mean, that is the sweetest deal you could possibly imagine if you're a pharmaceutical company. I mean, this just does not get better if you're the CEO of a major drug company. It It's the worst in the world for the population because we just got fleeced like three different ways. We invested the money to give them the research. We pay the highest prices for the final product. And there's no price competition because we gave them monopoly patents. Well put. Uh, I, it's just adding to the fuel of my anti-Clinton fervor. Uh, I think the last time you were on the show, we were talking about that in regards to uh, Rahm Emanuel. Just as with each passing day, I get more upset with Bill Clinton and his administration and, and then mad at myself because I voted for him uh, twice. Every time he was on the ballot, I voted for him. So I guess it's my fault. All right, before I get too depressed about the role I've played in politics, uh, uh, in, in electing these people, uh, let's get you to comment uh, on the news that I began the show with before we close it down. Uh, and that, of course, is that the voting rights bill, it seems like uh, it has um, hit the wall uh, because Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, has announced that there's no way uh, that she could possibly, in good conscience, uh, agree uh, to weaken the filibuster in the Senate and that uh, we need to encourage as much as possible uh, bipartisanship, even though there are no Republicans on the bill and there's no way it will pass. And she says she wants to pass it unless we get rid of the filibuster. This is madness, David Sirota. Not as bad as looking the other way as uh, uh, as the earth is about to be blown up by a meteor. Uh, but in that direction, in my humble opinion, uh, your take on this latest development. Well, first of all, uh, I, I find it uh, very revealing that you don't simultaneously see uh, Kristen Cinema campaigning in Republican states to pressure Republicans to support voting rights. So in other words, that's a tell that this is all a game. Oh, I support it. I want the Republicans to support it, but I'm not going to even lift a finger to, to, to try to get them to support it. So it's, it's really, to, to me, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a tell that this is a person who thinks this is all a game. Uh, I, I also have a larger concern criticism of the entire way this thing has played out. The Democrats focusing on voting rights in absence of delivering permanent economic benefits to an economically pulverized working class, to me, it just says so much about what this party believes and doesn't believe. And what I'm trying to say here is the public has been voting for change for the last, I would argue, since 2006, the uh, the anti-Bush uh, uh, 
congressional race, then of course 2008. The public keeps voting for change. The public keeps using the democratic process to vote for change. And the democratic process, small d democratic process, keeps producing more of the same. And so the idea that the democracy crisis is merely a crisis of people not uh, having their votes counted or being becoming harder to vote. I, I'm all for voting rights. I'm all for protecting voting rights, of course. But my point is that the democracy crisis, first and foremost, is a crisis of a nominally democratic government refusing to give the public what it wants. And so voting rights in absence of actually delivering policy change is almost feels performative that it that the formula of the democratic party in my view and it was back in FDR's day he talked about this explicitly that essentially you have to show that a democratic government will deliver real benefits not just for its corporate donors but for voters that if you show people that they're more likely to care about and believe in democracy they're more likely to believe their vote matters that voting rights in absence of delivering for voters suggests that the voting process unto itself is performative it's 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 this thing that we do it's like a like a ceremony but it doesn't actually necessarily matter and so, I mean, there's this famous quote that FDR said, you know, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, this is back in the thirties, a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, industrial, uh, uh, advanced countries, uh, have, have, have decided to uh, not be democratic anymore, uh, not because their people didn't want the right to self-governance, but because, uh, they saw a dysfunctional government and they decided to sacrifice liberty in the name of getting something to eat that right-wing opportunists, authoritarians, uh, uh, promised them that, hey, you may not have democracy, but I'm going to deliver for you. And that, to me, that's the real Democrat democracy crisis in America. And what's, what's the tell here is, is that the Democratic Party is pushing for voting rights in absence of delivering real help to millions of people because its donor class doesn't feel threatened by voting rights, that you have to understand the Democratic Party at this point, unfortunately, as an entity that will only do things that do not offend its donors. And the problem with that is that the corporate donor class, you cannot solve problems, real problems in America, and also appease and satisfy the donor class that is creating those problems. So voting rights in absence of actually challenging the donor class and delivering for work for, for working people is a kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a formula that admits that they're just not willing to actually address the real democracy crisis, which is a government in the people's name that refuses to deliver for people. Wow. That was a great riff, David. Uh, <laughs> I took notes and I'm probably going to steal all your ideas and not give you any credit, uh, in a column. Well, please do. <laughs> Cause everything you said applies to Chicago in so many levels, uh, <laughs> really, uh, in so many ways. 
Um, all right, David Sirota, it's a blast talking to you always. The last time we were on, uh, we were predicting that May, uh, Rahm Emanuel will be confirmed as ambassador to Japan, even though it's a disgrace. Uh, it happened. Uh, he is heading off to Japan as we speak. He's probably somewhere in the air flying. And uh, But nonetheless, it was a good fight. So thank you for joining that fight. It was an utter disgrace uh, that the Dems... <laughs> would nominate this guy uh, to be their ambassador. And I'm sure there'll be other fights uh, in the future that will require me to uh, reach out to you, bring you on the show, and discuss them. And it's always a blast talking to you, David. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us right now. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. That's the great David Sirota. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 